The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from Sivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat Bahamas, where yoga is more than a class, it's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, we invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at sivanandabahamas.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Ingrid Newkirk, is an animal rights activist and president of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Ingrid is the author of a number of books, including Making Kind Choices, Everyday Ways to Enhance Your Life Through Earth and Animal-Friendly Living, and Free the Animals, which was just reprinted as a 20th anniversary edition in 2012. Ingrid Newkirk was interviewed by Paul Sutherland in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Ingrid Newkirk, welcome to Essential Conversations. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You know, it seems to me that at the heart of your work is the realization that humans and animals are part of a single spectrum of sentient life that's deserving of love, care, dignity, and utmost respect. Absolutely. In fact, HBO did a documentary in which I appeared, and it's entitled, I Am an Animal, because I don't like these characterizations of living beings as, oh, I'm a woman, I'm white, I'm whatever it is. I think we're all in this together. We're all living beings. And it, we all feel joy and pain and grief and loneliness and all those things. And so, yes, I think we are all in it as one uh, being to consider, really. So when did you start to think that way? Did you grow up in a, in a household where this was part of what was taught to you or... Was it a religious experience or a spiritual conversion of some sort? How did you come to this realization? Well, actually, it was brought to me uh, in a book. I had grown up in a family that always thought that cruelty to animals was wrong, just as cruelty to the poor or the elderly or anybody else was wrong. Uh, We had those sorts of values, which most families do, but it hadn't occurred to me that while I would never kick the dog, for example, uh, we were condoning and actually funding cruelty in slaughterhouses and laboratories and so on by what we bought and what we ate and even what we wore. I had a, a little fur hat made of a wild cat from Kashmir that I loved when I was a child. Me, a kind child. So no, it didn't dawn on me until about 1970-something, the end of the 70s. I'm 66 now. And I read a book, Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. And in it, he posed the idea that perhaps we shouldn't be thinking of treating animals just benignly by making the chains longer, by making sure they had food and water, and be patronizing to them. But maybe there was this revolutionary thought that they are nations like ours on the face of the earth, 
and that their experiences are like ours, that they have emotions as we do, and that we should respect them as just others and stop thinking of them as subhumans or less, but just think of them as different but deserving of consideration. And that was an eye-opener for me and changed everything that I was thinking. So why do you think that's so difficult for people to grasp? I think it's because we grow up. I mean, here was I, a kind child in a kind family, and it hadn't occurred to me or my mother or father that perhaps this was a little bit contrary that we would be uh, taking animals, chickens, and uh, wearing fur and leather as if these animals didn't count in those contexts, as if they voluntarily somehow shed their skin or said, oh, are you hungry? Here, take my life. Um, I believe it's tradition. It's what we grow up doing, which is always hard for us to shake. And when people perhaps reach college age, they have this marvelous window of when they can start deciding what are the values I've been taught and which ones are true to the kind of person I wish to be and what sort of sense does it make that I'm doing this, that, and the other. And that is not limited to when you're in college, but that is one of the wonderful questioning times. And I think we have to keep those questioning times throughout our lives and see what are just old habits and what are things that make us um, compassionate individuals who make good choices. Do you think working with the language would be a value to change the way we speak about animals? What yes. about the word pet? Yes, uh, very much so. It's an excellent point because we've seen with race relations, with women's rights, we see some, so often that buzzwords are used that unconsciously or consciously put people down. They denigrate them. They pigeonhole them. And they are belittling or degrading. And the same is true when you look at the kinds of phrases and sayings we use about animals. You know, sly as a fox or, oh, are you chicken? It really shows maybe we don't deliberately set out to do it, but it's ingrained in our language and it needs to shift because we are attaching to various species qualities or not-so-nice qualities that are, are not accurate because all animals, like all human beings, and human beings are animals, are individuals. And yes, there are some common traits, but we need to be respectful. So yeah, pets, you remember the Playboy pets? I mean, women's movement didn't like that either. Animals who live with us hopefully have been taken in because they had nowhere else to go. Hopefully they came from a shelter. They weren't bred to be amusements in our home. And so companion animals is a good phrase that you see being used more. And pest is a bad word too. We're the biggest pests. We're always taking animals' habitat and building our skating rinks, parking lots, and shopping malls on them and then wondering why they encroach to get something to eat. All those phrases and words should be examined and should probably be adjusted. Is there anyone that works on that level with the language? Is that part of PETA's mission, to get us to change these metaphors yes. or drop these metaphors altogether? Yes, it absolutely is. And in fact, we have somebody who writes, whenever, for example, you're watching television or in the press, you see somebody say, of oh, a mass murderer or a rapist or somebody who's done something hideous, oh, he behaved like an animal. We always write in to say, pardon me, but it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to find another species who has 
performed these kinds of atrocities against those closest to them, the, the ones they should be able to relate to most. So we do that. And we do write to the papers and news sites about the use of the word it. It's quite extraordinary. You will see a story about, say, a mother gorilla or a mother dolphin with their infant. And it will say, it took the baby. It's a mother. <laughs> she took the baby. So, yes, semantics plays a huge role in rights movements and in movements for consideration of others. It has in the movement to recognize rights for children and for people with disabilities, too, in, in all movements. So, yes. There's a movement. It's, it's been going on for over two decades. I think it's called the Great Ape Project to advocate for a declaration of rights for great apes that would guarantee chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans a right to life, liberty, and freedom from torture. And obviously it runs up against this wall that we just have to be different. And I'm wondering if you think religion sort of feeds that wall, builds that wall, maybe even is almost entirely responsible for the foundation of that wall. I think that's an excellent point because you certainly see historically that religions have often stood in the way of the recognition of the fundamental rights of other living beings. Religion has a lot to answer for in the past. Not only, I mean, you go to the Crusades. All religions have done atrocious things in the name of religion. There is a movement, certainly within most of the major religions, to recognize that the church or the religion can take a leadership role in trying to talk to congregants about being open to the idea that magnanimity, generosity, compassion are fundamental to a fundamental tenet of every major religion. And looking back, one has to wonder, how did it come to be that major religions are so stalwart in their initial opposition to things like human slavery? How is it that decent people have often had to fight within their religions to have the recognition of women or whatever it may be? So yes, I do unfortunately, with great regret, say that religions can sometimes be stumbling blocks to decency toward others. With the Great Eight Project, you draw, and, and we have we had the SeaWorld Orca lawsuit to try to recognize that they are held prisoners, they are slaves under the U.S. Constitution, and the judge was very respectful and heard it, but basically the time wasn't right. People are not ready to embrace the idea of including certain others, and this historically has always been a problem. You've always had to litigate, argue, protest, until enough people recognize that apartheid is wrong or that animal liberation is justified. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You really do not gain from standing and oppressing others, building yourself up at the expense of others. Your heart is big. Your intellect tells you it's right. You shouldn't allow religion to stand in the way of ethical societal progress. 
it seems to me that religion may be you know one one aspect of the problem the other is just greed in general when you look at what happens with ivory trade and all of that when money's involved it must make it even more difficult to get people to realize this is an evil thing to do yes money the root of most evil is not all evil corporate greed terrible difficulty we bring shareholder resolutions before companies to say, we'd like this company to act more ethically by just changing in this maybe small way. And of course, the majority stockholders are usually corporations. They own chunks of this company and you cannot get past them because they just vote no on anything. You've got the United States Congress taking money from corporations in the meatpacking industry, in the dairy business. There was even a fur coat subsidy some years back that was bought to, by a member of Congress, passed the House, passed the Senate, um, to help furriers with their wares overseas. So yes, money is a problem. And that's why every single decision that we make, what to wear, what to eat, what to buy, how to entertain ourselves, depends on our making compassionate decisions. And we can. Our choices are huge if we know what they are. At home, you have so many opportunities every day. There are phenomenal, wonderful cookbooks like Alicia Silverstone's Kind Cookbook or Paul Ronan's cookbook, Chef Tal, that show you how to veganize the recipes you like at home and how to try new foods that don't come from animals. I always say, if people are going out to buy a pair of shoes or a coat or anything, just make sure, please, that nothing in it comes from an animal, which these days is so easy to do. We have all these synthetic and natural fibers, because the rule is, the principle really, is if you see that there's an animal ingredient in anything, then did they give that up voluntarily? No. And did they have a choice? No. Were they killed for it? Quite often. And it doesn't have to be that way. We're not survivalists. So if your child is in school, there are computer programs instead of cutting up the cat or the mouse. If you have things you want to give away or you no longer use, you can always decide on charities to give them to and you can then decide what you want your funds to go to in your will. Anything that helps whatever cause you like, but really what you buy throughout the year in all forms, even vacations. Don't get your picture taken with the parrot or the monkey if you're in a South American country, for example. It means they take them from the wild. Just think, is there anything to do with animals in what I'm about to pay for? And if there is, please, please, just look on our website, peter.org, look in my book, look anywhere and find the alternative and sponsor that, patronize that, pay for that. So I'm, I'm interested, actually was surprised only because I hadn't thought of it. The notion of, of it being voluntary, when I think about Issues around uh, animals, I think, in terms of suffering, you know, when I think ethically about animals, I, I guess I'm I'm more concerned because I hadn't thought about the voluntary nature of this thing, but about their sanctions or their capacity to feel pain. What's the principle that PETA uses when talking about the ethics of, of our treatment of animals? Does it focus on, well, these beings are conscious the way you and I are conscious or they feel pain the way we feel pain? How do you explain yeah. that to people? I think what we say in its simplest form is, remember, I am you, only different. So we sometimes justify appalling treatment of others because they're different. And Peter's principle is that we're against exploitation, we're against injustice, and we're against needless violence. And if those tenets matter to you, it shouldn't be that it only matters to those you relate to the most 
closely, that you think, oh, well, you know, people in my village shouldn't be treated that way, or my family shouldn't be treated that way, or people I relate to. It's a universal principle is anything that's needlessly violent and exploitive and is discriminatory, please try to eliminate from your behavior to any others, because no matter what package a living being comes in, who cares if they are black, white, fur, feathers, it's what's inside that counts. And inside every living being, there's a beating heart. There are thoughts. There are emotions. There are feelings. And that is what counts. When you mentioned not being volunteers and thinking about that, and I think the most obvious example is the circus. You know, Cirque du Soleil has these phenomenal jugglers and acrobats. I don't even know how these human beings can do what they do. At the end of it, they go home to their families. They can take a walk. They get paid. They can retire. They can even quit. Animals in the circus, elephants are chained up. Tigers are in small cages. The bull hooks, the whip, all that is used on them. They have nothing. They are not volunteers. They don't wish to be there. I think it sounds like if we begin to focus on beings rather than human beings, you know, separating out human as a different kind of category, that we might have a little bigger window into, like, if you go to a circus, you know, or anything like that, a zoo or whatever, and you imagine, now oh, these are beings caught in these cages. These are beings trapped in this system. And just because they're not human doesn't mean they're not of concern to me. I've heard this so many times when people talk about people for the ethical treatment of animals. They always say, well, they don't make any distinction. If you have to choose between a bear cub and a, and a little human baby, if you could only save one, you know, they would save the bear cub. I mean, and that's incredibly stereotypical. But I want to pose a question, which I'm sure you've heard before. Can we make distinctions not based on the species specifically, but based on the level of consciousness? If you have a human baby that is in a vegetative state, a human being in a vegetative state, and an animal who's not, a chimp or whatever it is, and you can only save one, is there a criteria? Can you use sanctions as a criteria for making that ethical decision? Well, I have to tell you, I don't like this question when it's yeah. asked. As you can imagine, it sometimes distracts people from the fact that it's a rare circumstance indeed where anyone has to make such a decision. And I think such a decision would be extraordinarily hard to make. I mean, who is going to ever, no matter how conscious the other is, make a decision to uh, take some action against their unconscious child? There are ways to look at this, though, and that is, I suppose, as you point out, yes, consciousness, feeling has to count for something. And in our day-to-day -day lives, we are not faced with having to sacrifice or make an ugly decision about anything. We are actually looking at, oh boy, we can save this animal or that animal by just choosing a soy milk instead of a cow's milk. And people say, oh, they don't kill the calf. They do. They kill the calf and the mother. It's actually worse than beef because the mother is impregnated, has the child. The child she loves is taken away. They are dehorned and so on, put in veal crates, whatever happens to them. And in the end of the whole process, both of them goes down a slaughter ramp to their death. So, yes, choosing the soy milk is a way to save an animal who is lovely and gentle and lumbering. Every single thing, how we deal with anything in our lives, saves. I don't think we have to be distracted by that. But, yes, if you were in a boat and your child and your dog were drowning and you could only save one, I think any mother would save her own child in all probability. 
and any dog would possibly save their own baby. <laughs> any baboon would save her child. Who knows? Those are awful decisions. A comedian made an analogy to this, and he said, if you could only save one, and one was Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial murderer, and the other was Lassie, would it be so hard for you to make the decision? No, that's a great response, (laughs) and, and I really appreciate your answer and the interview. So thank you very much for being with us. Support for this show comes from Shivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat in the Bahamas, where yoga is more than a class, it's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, we invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at shivanandabahamas.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I want to thank our guest today, Ingrid Newkirk, for being with us. And you can find out more about her work at PETA, P-E-T-A dot org. And again, you can read the interview with her conducted by Paul Sutherland in the current issue of Spirituality Health magazine available at spiritualityhealth.com. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.